interested in something to want to know everything about it. It started when I was little. When I was a kid, before the internet, surprisingly, I didn't have the internet when I was a kid, Um, I would go to the library and check out every book on whatever it was I was interested in. I remember one year it was airplanes. My mom had cleaned the house of this World War II veteran who flew P-38s and B-29 bombers in the war. And then after the war, he was an experimental pilot and he taught at Embry-Riddle aeronautical university and while my mom would clean his house he would regale me with all of his exploits in the war and we would talk about planes and flying and and then I would go home and I would find books on the subject and I would learn everything I could about it and then I would go and talk to him the next week I was zealous to learn more and I had one singular focus I wanted to learn whatever I was interested in That's all I could think about. It would drive my mom crazy because then I wouldn't be focused on chores or schoolwork or the things that I should be focused on. But you could say that I was zealous to learn everything about that subject, and the zeal gave me that singular focus that excluded everything else from my vision. And it's, it's certainly acceptable as a child to be zealous about a hobby or, or even as, as an adult to be zealous about learning something new or, or about your vocation. But, but what we all could be reminded of and grow in is Christian zeal. J.C. Ryle defines it this way, zeal in Christianity is a burning desire to please God and to do his will and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. In our text this morning, Jesus becomes a model for Christian zeal. More specifically, he models the zealous pursuit of purity in our worship. In fact, nothing rises the ire of God more than corruption in worship. Our sinful tendency in worship is to drift towards man-made towards something that's centered upon us. And as we watch this episode in John chapter 2, where Jesus cleanses the temple unfold, we learn something about the nature and the end of true worship. The end of something is the goal that it's moving towards. Looking at the corruption of worship in the temple can provide us with a helpful corrective since we are just as prone as Israel to make worship man-made and man-centered. We must be zealous for the worship's purity since worship is ordained by God and Christ-centered. So if you have a Bible with you, please stand with me as we read from the Gospel of John beginning chapter 2 and verse 13. It is also printed for you in your bulletin. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. 
So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Father, that as we come now to worship you together, that our hearts will be cleansed and purified so that we worship you rightly, not centered on ourselves, not based on our own innovations, but based solely on your word and leading to glorify you forever. Bless our hearts as we open this word, as we learn from it, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. The Passover of the Jews was a high holy day. All the Jewish males were required to return to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is commemorates the event where God sends the angel of death over the people uh, of, of Egypt and Israel, and all those whose houses were painted with the blood of the Lamb, they would pass over that. But those who are not, the firstborn, were struck dead. And God had commanded them in Exodus 12 to commemorate this event perpetually until the end. And so they celebrated this Passover every year. And the Jews were meticulous in keeping themselves clean so that they can participate in this sacred rite. Since their return to the land from exile in Babylon, the Jews had gone to great lengths not to return to the sin that had led them into exile. They carefully guarded their purity, following all the traditions of their fathers. Traditions that laid fences around the laws to keep them from transgressing them. But what began as a good initiative to maintain their distinctiveness as a people and to keep from sin soon evolved into elevating men's traditions above God's commandments. Here, Jesus is most stringent in his critique of his fellow Jews. You see, in their efforts to fence the law, they missed the whole point of the law. They kept what looked like the letter of the law, but they missed its spirit. But when you miss the spirit, you often miss the whole point of the law. You miss its whole intent. And then you end up doing very stupid things, like getting angry with Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath. Sabbath, because that can be construed as work. But in this case, the worship Their worship at the temple was corrupted by usefulness. So many problems have begun when people try to be useful. So many problems uh, come from just a little innovation entered into the worship to make things easier, to make things run more smoothly. A little tweak here, a little tweak there. God will be so pleased with our our new innovations. Plus, it will bring us 
online with all the acceptable cultural practices of the day. You see, when God tore the kingdom of Israel in two, uh, and then the ten northern tribes were given to Jeroboam from Solomon's son Rehoboam, he immediately began to worry about uh, his constituents. He thought, if if my people who are up north are drawn to go back to Jerusalem to worship God, then they will want to go and be under the kingship of the Davidic king, Rehoboam. So he thought, well, you know what? Here's what I can do. I'll make it easier for them to worship. So he set up two idols, one in, in uh, Bethel and one uh, all the way up north in Dan. He was trying to be useful so that the people of God would not have to travel so far to go down to Jerusalem. They could just go up north to Dan or down to Bethel and worship Yahweh there. And since he couldn't recreate the temple in two places, he made two idols. Now, no doubt he meant for the people of God to worship Yahweh in the worship of these idols. But you could see how that would soon be corrupted. So he built golden calves. It was all the rage. It seemed like everyone was worshiping their God in the form of a cow or a bull. To us, these seem like significant deviations. But to Jeroboam, he was really just trying to be useful. He's really just trying to keep his people happy. He's really just trying to provide an easier way for them to worship Yahweh. He merely meant to keep his constituents pleased and at ease. The people that Jesus drives out of the temple are actually facilitating a legitimate need. Thousands of people would flock to Jerusalem during the Passover celebrations, many of them traveling to great lengths over across the whole Roman Empire. Many could not bring the animals with them that they needed to sacrifice to the Lord. And so, and, and they also did not have the right kind of money to use in the temple tax, which was only uh, the coin of Tyre, because the Tyre coin was made of pure gold or silver. It was considered the standard of money at that time. And so it had to be exchanged. All their funny foreign money had to be exchanged for this right coin so that they could give to the Lord. And this was laid down for them in the law in Deuteronomy 14, verse 24. It says, And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So in order for them to participate in these feasts, they sold their tithe, which was the produce of their land, their animals. They sold that, turned it into money, and then they went to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. So the people, the problem is not what they are doing that is, buying animals and exchanging foreign money, there's nothing illegitimate about that. But the problem is where they are doing it. And by implication, 
what necessary thing is being neglected because they are doing that there. People must buy these sacrificial animals and exchange foreign coins. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's taking place in the temple, a place of worship. And the reasoning goes, why should wealthy people who can pay have to herd their sacrificial animals all the way to the temple, right? I mean, you can imagine you have to herd your animals all the way down from North Scranton to here, right? Miles. Jerusalem is a very large city, and the temple is uphill everywhere you go. So the reasoning is, well, let's make it easier for them. We'll just provide this necessary, legitimate thing right at the temple. The people won't have to travel. They can just bring their money, and they can get exactly what's needed. And of course, there's the added bonus, because we know from later evidence that the priests were actually charging a tax for these money exchangers, those who are selling animals. So the priests are like, hey, we can make some extra money for the church, right? It's going to be for the church. So we'll, we'll have this legitimate function providing sacrificial animals and foreign money exchange. And we'll do it at the temple. And on top of that, we'll make a little bit extra for ourselves. And so now a space that was used for worship, a place of prayer, which should be free from the hustle and bustle of the market with its loud negotiations and clanging money, is filled with that. It should be a place of contemplation, a place where we're lifting up our hearts to the Lord, but instead we're worried about, are we getting the best rate on our money? And we're examining the different sacrificial offerings that we can choose from and trying to get the best one for our money. It may be asked why Jesus so abruptly and violently corrects this behavior by making a whip and driving them all out. Why does he not just tell them a parable? Why doesn't he just teach them? This is wrong. You shouldn't corrupt the worship in this way. God should be worshipped in this place, and instead, you've made it a place of business. Well, first, Jesus is clearly showing that what he's doing comes from a place of authority. Jesus is a king, and this is his father's house. And he has ownership over this house. So he has the authority to come in and drive people out who are doing things in his father's house that ought not to be done. And he is the son who has come from the father. And he clears the temple with the authority of a king. Secondly, this enacted cleansing is much more effective on the level of stirring our desires. What is more convincing? Me telling you that this area is filthy and needs to be clean? Or me going and taking a cloth and spraying it and then wiping it and showing you how dirty it really is? Jesus is showing them in an enacted parable the purpose of cleansing the temple. You would see right away how serious he was, the authority he had, and how the worship had become corrupt. And God, of course, this is not really something new. This is not something that God has not addressed repeatedly throughout his word. In fact, 
Uh, right from the very beginning with the story of Cain and Abel, God is differentiating between true and false worship. The, the two sons of Adam come and bring sacrifices, and only one of them pleases God. Cain's sacrifice did not, uh, was not offered acceptably to God. And so Cain is uh, jealous of his brother, and he murders him. And on and on through history, when Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu got innovative by making their own incense to burn before the Lord, fire came out from him, and consumed them. No doubt they, they liked this new smell of incense. And they thought that because they liked it, God would like it too. And they offered it and they were struck down because they did not honor and revere the Lord. Then there's the account of Uzzah, who is struck dead for trying to steady the Ark of the Covenant when David is trying to bring it back to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark is going to fall and it's on a cart And all Uzzah cares about is this keeping the ark from falling. Why is it that God would strike him down? Well, God struck him down because he did not do what God had prescribed for him to do. In fact, the blame can be put on David. For the the ark of the covenant was never meant to be treated like the Philistines treated it. Carried on an ox on a cart. It was to be carried on long poles by Levites only. And it was not to be seen by the people of God. God is showing, instructing his people over and over again at the course of history that his name will be revered and he will be worshipped in the way that he has prescribed. Jesus is teaching that very same important principle in worship. God and God alone determines how he is to be worshipped. We call this in the Reformed circles, the regulative principle of worship. And our confession attests in chapter 21, section 1, it says, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. You see, we do not worship in man-made ways. God has ordained the ways that He is to be worshipped, and we are to follow those. The zeal that Jesus shows by cleansing the temple ought to be the same zeal that we show to guard the purity of worship today. To make sure that useful innovations don't lead us away from the pure worship of God. It would be easy for me at this point to point fingers at the prosperity gospel who seem to have made the market the model for their ministry. And it is true that the prosperity gospel and all that attends such worship services are an abomination to the Lord. But I wonder if there are not ways we might be driven by the very same motives. The priests wanted to make a quick buck, so they removed the burden of worship by making it easy. By doing so, they removed prayer. They removed the silence of contemplation. They removed the attitude that all of us together are joined in reverence and awe before a holy God. You might be thinking, well, doesn't this not apply to us new covenant worshipers? 
who Jesus will soon show are to worship in spirit and in truth, that the outward form has changed. Yes, it has. The outward form has changed, but the heart attitude has not. Nor indeed have the basic elements. Prayer, singing, confession, sacrifice, and instruction were all included in the Old Covenant as well. The form has changed, but the object of our worship has not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Are you not cultivating the same attitude of whatever is useful to me when you mosey into church after the call to worship? You perpetually late. Would you dare to be late if the president invited you somewhere? If he said, I want to meet with you personally, and you have to be there at 1045, you would be there at 10 o'clock, waiting. Or your favorite celebrity. No, you would be early. You would be there. You would make sure that there was nothing in your way to miss that. But on the Lord's Day, when you come to worship the sovereign, omnipotent Lord, that's no big deal. point is that it can be easy to point to paint targets on those low-hanging fruit like the prosperity gospel but we need to examine our own hearts to ensure that the god of usefulness has not infiltrated our worship too worship is not man-made but it comes from god why because god is in the midst of her he is the temple and the lamb Don't let the language or dispensationalism fool you. It is not a literal city. It is you. You are the people of God. As Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the zeal that consumed Jesus to purify worship at the temple is the same zeal He shows in purifying you. The purity of worship is not so that we can sit back and congratulate ourselves that we are not like other churches. The purity of worship is meant to lead to purity of life. That worship which is God-given and Christ-centered results in lives that are Lord's Day by Lord's Day change from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of the Lord. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Pure worship, and here, leads to pure living out there. We must be zealous for worship's purity since worship is ordained by God and Christ-centered. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we lack the zeal that Christ had to purify worship. We lack the zeal because we don't want to be confronted with Your holiness. It causes us to shrink back in fear. And rightly so, Father, for we as sinful creatures, apart from the work of Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness, imputed to us and received by faith alone, we would be unable to stand in your presence. We would be undone. But because of Christ, we can stand unashamed with great joy before your throne. For we are your temple. The temple that you are continuing to cleanse and purify. 
to be that perfect, spotless bride of Christ. Father, continue your work. Purify us so that we may be pure, so that our worship may be orientated rightly to you and our lives may be conformed to Christ as we behold him Lord's day after Lord's day. For we pray this in his strong name. And amen.